11 through 12 of the same chapter. Uh, And next Sunday, Pastor Stephen will lead us in the final verses of James through his fourth annual letter Sunday, which he is very excited to bring to us next week. Um, As I meditated on the text earlier in the week, I was particularly drawn to James 5.12, and therefore the title you see in your bulletin is Yes Does Not Equal No. I'm sure that would be a lovely sermon. It's not today's sermon. As the week progressed, God led me in a different direction, so instead we're going to borrow the heading assigned to the section as the title of this sermon, Patience in Suffering. Uh, Before we hear God's word for us, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, hear the word of the Lord from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rain. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The themes of waiting and patience and perseverance in this text remind me of Advent. And indeed, this text is assigned to the season of Advent in the Revised Common Lectionary, which is the resource we use when selecting our Advent passages. Advent is the season in the church calendar when we anticipate Jesus' birth. Here at North Holland, if you remember with me, we set up the Advent wreath beside the pulpit. We read passages of hope and expectation, lighting candles that symbolize God's presence among us. We remember the stories of John the Baptist, who prepared the way, of Mary, who carried Jesus in her womb, and of dozens of Old Testament characters who longed for salvation, judgment, and repentance. This type of longing is beautifully captured in Psalm 130, where the psalmist writes this, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. God's people know waiting stories well. We know the creation has been groaning for restoration since the beginning. We recall the ancient people who cried out for redemption in Egypt and longed for the promised land and of the prophets who yearned for God's judgment. We hear Jesus ache 
for God's kingdom to be realized on this earth. We witnessed the disciples desperately scramble to keep that work alive after Jesus ascended. And today, in our passage, we see James encouraging believers to press into this waiting, this patience, even though their longevity as a young church was unclear, but their suffering was certain. Think of the farmer, James says, waiting for the autumn and spring rain. He plants the seed. He works the ground, sacrifices time and energy and money, and then must wait. The early rains get the crop started, allowing the seed to sprout, and all the while the farmer is patient. The late rains enable the filling out of the grain, and the farmer must stand firm. You too be patient and stand firm, James says. Wait for the giver of rain, as God's people have been doing since the days of Deuteronomy and Joel. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine, and olive oil, God says in Deuteronomy 11. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rain, because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before, proclaims Joel the prophet. The patience that James describes is one that labors toward an uncertain future, with deep persistence and hopefulness, one that aligns our hearts with the harvest after the rain. Sterexate tas cardias, strengthen your hearts, reads the Greek in James 5.8, because the coming of the Lord is near. The rain will come. The land will yield. Patience and suffering, it's a bit like the dry ground, craving rain or like thirsty, parched people who don't grumble at each other, but instead sow peace, refreshing one another's souls with pure, gentle, submissive, full of mercy, language, and love. Remember that with me from James 3. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James does not say don't grumble. Grumbling is honest sometimes. James says don't grumble against your neighbor. Patience requires a capacity to live with unresolved problems in people. It's tempting to impose a quick fix on messy situations or to manipulate a relationship to get what we want, to become bitter in the face of hardship, to pull away when our health or family work or faith deteriorates. It's easy to lash out when we're afraid, to deflect, to judge others. And it might feel good to grumble at your neighbor, but that isn't the invitation for us this morning. Instead, we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we might be healed, which we'll hear more about next week. We combat grumbling against our neighbor by watching over 
and caring for one another. We cultivate a deep compassion and patience towards one another, believing that when we slow down and notice each other, when we give our lives to one another, that is when we experience profound joy, even though we suffer. We practice strengthening our hearts together, naming when we're a bit grumbly inside. Jane uses Job and the prophets as examples of biblical characters who had every reason to grumble in the face of incredible suffering, persecution, and opposition, and yet modeled perseverance and strength. Let's take a closer look at Job. Job is one of three wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Each wisdom book is important and presents different wonderings about God and how we relate to God. In Proverbs, we encounter a wise and just God who has ordered the world to be fair, establishing a system where the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. Everybody gets what they deserve. But then in Ecclesiastes, we learn that the world isn't always fair. People don't always get what they deserve. Sometimes life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend. So the author poses the question, is God just and wise? And that question is what gets explored in Job. The Bible Project, a nonprofit that creates videos and other resources that narrate the Bible, offers this really helpful summary of Job. The book opens with a strange story. God is there with angelic creatures reporting for duty, and one of the creatures, the Satan, meaning the one who is opposed, proposes that Job, a very righteous man who feared God and turned away from evil, might not actually love God. Perhaps Job only tries to be a good person because God rewards him when he does so. Satan believes Job will not remain faithful to God if all the good gifts in his life are taken away. Satan thinks Job is obeying God just to play the system, to get the life he wants. So God allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job, to test his theory, and as a result, Job loses everything and everyone that he cares about, his family, his health, his resources, everything. His grumbling is unleashed in the third chapter. Job says this, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job's friends then come around him and offer their help. They are convinced that Job did something horribly wrong to deserve this because they believe that the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. Job's experience conflicts with their understanding of how God rules the world. For the next 34 chapters, the friends in Job go back and forth, speculating why God might have sent such suffering upon Job. They make lists of hypothetical sins Job must have committed, but Job defends his innocence because he is innocent. God said so in the very first chapter. By the end of this dialogue with his friends, Job demands that God come in person and explain what's going on. And God does, in the form of a storm cloud. 
God does not give Job a direct answer or tell Job about the conversation with Satan. Instead, he takes Job on a tour of the universe, showing Job how grand it all is and clearly pointing out there's just no way Job can understand it all. There's so much detail, all details that only God knows intimately. It's not really a defense for why this happened to Job, but it leaves Job in a posture of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. So that's the example that James gives us of what it means to be patient in suffering. This unbelievable, crazy, faithful example of a man who suffered in every way that we can fathom and yet remained steadfast. I love that James selected this Old Testament story to bolster his point because Job's story is not, it is not about getting clarity in suffering. It's not about having confidence that God is always going to bless the righteous and condemn the wicked. Job is all over the place throughout the book, trying to understand, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? He never learns why. When we remember Job's story, the fact that he endured incredible suffering for reasons he never understood and did not deserve, we learn something about patience and suffering that James doesn't want us to miss. First of all, patience is really hard work. That's pretty clear from Job's story. But secondly, it is not about having the right answers, about connecting the dots between bad behavior and consequences, good behavior and reward. Patience is not always, in fact, not usually going to bring clarity. Patience in suffering is about investing in the relationships we have with God and with each other. The objective is to know God and our neighbor more fully. We have no right to grumble at somebody else because faith and righteousness and wickedness are a lot more complicated than, oh, she had it coming, or he deserved it, or wow. They walked right into that one. It's about remaining faithful because God's with us in all of this. God is paying attention. Don't receive that as a threat. It's not. God's here. God is in the room. God is not some aloof, mysterious presence, but someone who responds to human needs and requests. God is living and active. James says God is compassionate and merciful. That's what should inspire us to be patient and do good works. Not a sense of obligation or playing the system to get what we want out of life, like Satan accuses Job of. Our faith should not be about comparing our works to others and judging who's done a better job or looking at someone's suffering and concluding that they're outside of God's favor. That's not patience. That's judgment. God is standing at the door, says James, watching the people bicker and grumble and shaking his head saying, they think they know everything. They think they know everything. When we do that, we miss the opportunity to come alongside someone who is suffering. Have you done that? Have you just grumbled about someone who's suffering, judging them for how they got to where they are, and missed the chance to strengthen your hearts together, to grow in patience, to wait together, to encourage one another, or to be heartbroken together? 
Or has someone missed you in your suffering? Instead of being patient with you and hoping with you and praying with you, they've expected you to just get it together because your suffering makes them uncomfortable or they think it's been long enough. Or they expect you to get yourself out of the mess you put yourself in. Friends, be patient with one another, even, especially, in suffering. Be patient, like the farmer. Don't take shortcuts. Don't walk away. Wait. Be patient. Seek God out, like Job. Have compassion with yourself and with others. After all, we are just human beings. I used to believe as a little kid, as many kids do, that when I became an adult, I would just understand how everything worked. I even imagined, this actually happened, in my mind, a pamphlet that I would be given with instructions about where to find a spouse, what to major in in college, how to organize a budget, how to get any stain out of a white t-shirt. I actually thought about that. I remember, this is what the pamphlet will look like when I become an adult. I just thought I would reach age 18 or 21, and then this light bulb would go off, and I'd be like, oh, insurance, taxes, bills, I understand this. That did not happen, asked my parents, because life doesn't work like that. It takes experience, making mistakes, getting hurt, asking questions, being encouraged. It takes patience. Sometimes there is suffering. Ultimately, there is an ongoing invitation to invest in relationships with God and fellow human beings, laboring towards one another with deep persistence and hopefulness, aligning our hearts with the harvest after the rain. James has one more piece of advice for us as we seek patience in suffering, which will carry us into next week's text. And that's James 5.12. It says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. As usual, James is referencing a passage from Matthew 5, where Jesus tells believers not to swear any oaths at all. Jesus says this, Again, you have heard, it said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In this passage, Jesus is responding to a popular abuse of oath-taking in his day. According to the InterVarsity New Testament commentaries, a common Jewish practice to protect God's name from careless oath-takers was using stand-in objects or places to swear upon. Heaven, for example, or earth, Jerusalem, your right hand. Some people thought it was harmless to deceive if they swore oaths by something other than God, because the further removed the oath was from the actual name of God, the less danger they faced for violating the truth. They were looking for a loophole. 
This practice was so common, the Jewish teachers had to straighten out which oaths were actually binding. If I swear by heaven, does that bring God into it? If I swear by earth, is God paying attention? If I swear by Jerusalem or by my right hand, does that bring God into it? James and Jesus' point in bringing this up is that God is witness to every word we say. We don't decide when God is or is not hearing the promises we make. God's there for all of it. So tell the truth. It's that simple. When you say yes to something, mean it. When you say no to something, mean it. Follow through. Don't say a bunch of fancy, meaningless words about what you're going to do or not do with no action. Don't swear by God or by heaven or by earth or by your grandmother's grave. Just do it or don't do it. We call this having integrity. Integrity. The working definition that we use of integrity in our Ritter Churches Learning Change circles is this. Integrity is doing what I said I would do, when I said I would do it, in the manner it should be done. Integrity is doing what I said I would do, when I said I would do it, in the manner it should be done. This definition is inspired by passages like James 5.12 in Scripture. When I say yes to something, I should do it. When I said I would do it, and in the right way. If I don't think I can or should do that thing because I can't accomplish it by the time it needs to be done or in the manner it should be done, then I should not do that thing. Because I'm a human being, I will eventually commit to something I don't follow through on. And in those cases, I need to loop back to those who were impacted and own up to my shortcomings for the sake of living in integrity. It takes a lot of patience. And of course, we know that when we don't do this well, when we don't do what we said we would do, when we said we would do it in the manner it should have been done, when we don't act and speak with integrity, we implicitly or explicitly cause suffering and anxiety in the community. Just tell the truth, says James. In Christian community, we must take our yeses and nos seriously. We must grow our capacity to be patient in suffering and to strengthen our hearts. Unlike the wicked rich from last week, who are completely self-oriented, we must be others-oriented. We must care deeply about one another's words, about one another's stories, and reach out vulnerably when we are grumbling. In this text, God invites us to do so, us, invites us to so much more than a checklist of stuff to do and stuff not to do, or even of stuff to believe and stuff not to believe. God invites us to enter into a reality in which compassion, empathy, patience, and truth-telling are the ways in which we navigate the world. God invites us to cultivate a deep awareness of the Spirit, murmuring in and through suffering and joy. It takes perseverance and courage. It requires being vulnerable, which is really scary, in today's shaming, hateful, dismissive world. But let's strive for those things anyway. Let's strive for those things anyway and echo the words of the psalmist. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait 
for the morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. God, as we remember Job's story this morning, I find myself in a posture of gratefulness. God, I'm so thankful that you make space for me, that you want me to call on you when I grumble, and to entrust my grumblings to your people. But God, it's hard work to do, and there are times when I've been hurt in that process, even by people who love me most in this world. God, give me courage to try again, to speak the truth, to have grace with myself, and to orient my heart toward my neighbor.